Hey everyone, this is Tom Singer. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to inform you about a special offer that I have to join a brand new group called My Sales Call. If you work for a small business or if you're a solopreneur, having some people to talk about ideas and best practices and to have a focus and accountability around sales is so important. It's so easy to get caught up in the busy work that we don't do what we need to do to drive the sales in our business. So I have started a weekly call where people can get together and share ideas around sales and then make a commitment to the group of what they're going to accomplish for the next week. It's just like if you work for a big company, your sales manager would have a weekly sales call. This is your sales call. Go to mysalescall.com to find out more and sign up today. Welcome to the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we explore the interesting lives of business leaders, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, and others who have a healthy dose of the entrepreneurial spirit. It is time to explore something cool. Now, here is your host, Tom Singer. Hey, hey, and welcome back to another episode of Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Thank you so much for pulling your chair up to this virtual cool kids table. Hey, you know, if you listen regularly, I say it quite a bit that I started this podcast five and a half years ago so that I could have access to people who've done really smart things and really cool things in the areas of business. And I have now gotten up well over 550 episodes. It's crazy that uh, I keep learning. But what's awesome is that all of you who come along and listen, tell me that you're learning things too and that you enjoy these interviews. So uh, please keep communicating with me. If you like the podcast, you can always find me at tomsinger.com. That's T-H-O-M-S-I-N-G-E-R.com. Or you can find me on all the social medias at Tom Singer. So today I am bringing to you somebody else who I met at the New Media Summit. He has kind of an interesting background. What I liked about it is like when he was in college, he decided he'd start a valet parking company, right? That sounds cool. You get to drive a couple of Porsches. You know, you get to stay fit because you're running back and forth. Sounds like a great idea. Four years later, they had 400 employees. They were running like a legit major business in the world of putting your car into a parking spot while you go and eat. Uh, I think that's a pretty cool story of how they grew that. And then uh, I assume they sold that. I'm not sure. But now he has a company called Excellent Decisions, which is a coaching and consulting company that helps people make better decisions through vision, values, and value. And I thought, wow, that's exactly what we talk about here on Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. So Robert McPhee, welcome to the show. I'm thrilled to be here, and I love how you took that valet parking story and pulled all the positive things out of it, the fun of, like, you know, running up and down the street. And it was in San Diego, too, so we got to be out by the beach. It was beautiful. Awesome. Uh, Awesome. Well, I wonder if you ever parked my car. We seem to be about the same age, and I went to college in San Diego in the late 80s. Oh, really? Where did you go to school? I went to San Diego State University. Go Aztecs! All right. Uh, I was a a UC San Diego guy living on the beach in La Jolla while you guys were doing all the work. Oh, I was living. Yeah, that never happened at San Diego State. I uh, I was actually living in Pacific Beach my last year. So uh, uh, the, the, the Cass Street Bar and Grill, we called it our living room. Well, to this day, I still meet people. I live in Northern California now, but when I'm in San Diego, especially, I still meet people who worked for me. They will walk up to me and know me by name. I have no idea who they are. But, you know, again, we had hundreds of employees and uh, and they remember me because I was the boss. So. so what year was it that you started this? Uh, it was 1983 when we started. It was literally my partner and I who we got to know each other at, at UC San Diego. And we had both worked for valet parking companies and we identified a need. 
and uh, approached some restaurants that were paying a busboy to sit on a milk crate and shoo away the beach parkers. And we suggested that they could pay us the same amount they're paying that busboy, and we would get 40 to 50% more cars into their parking lot at their busiest time of year, rather, uh, you know, rather than just having that busboy sitting out there. And, and it meant 40 to 50% more people in their restaurant. So even though we were a couple of kids that really didn't know what we were doing, it was a good idea. They gave us a chance, and, and it did work. It worked really well. So I've now proven that you're older than me because I didn't get to college till 1984. So, yeah. uh, you know, you're, you're a couple years older. So what restaurants in it? Were you in the La Jolla area? Where were you doing this? Uh, up in Del Mar, actually. Uh, Jake's. Oh, and of the course. Poseidon Jake's Del Mar. And the Brigantine were, uh, were the first three restaurants that uh, gave us a shot. So one, and, of, one uh, of my fraternity brothers who uh, was uh, 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 my roommate in the fraternity house, he actually uh, was a bartender and a barback at the Brigantine in Old Town. I don't know if there, there were two. Go. I guess there was one up in Del Mar, yeah. but he, yeah. he worked at the Brigantine. I remember that. Yep. Small world. Small so, world. So let's talk about it. You, you got this idea. How'd you grow the business? What happened? Well, I mean, the truth is this was two guys who had the best intentions, I think had a commitment to doing things well and taking care of our customers. But in terms of running the business, I'd be lying if I told you that we had it all figured out from the very beginning. What, you mean a couple of 20 year olds didn't know how to run a business? Come on. Yeah, but but what we did really have is we did have that commitment to doing it really well. We also both had the advantage of having worked for companies that did what they did really well. So we brought the experience that my partner, Michael, and I both had uh, to the business that we were starting. But literally, I mean, it was a summer job. And we did it for the first summer, and it worked out great. Uh, the bank thought we were drug dealers, I think, because every Monday morning we'd go in with wads of cash. But um, it, it worked out really well. And then the next that, summer we did that or, That or male strippers. Yeah, well, you'd have to see the way we looked at that time to know that wasn't a viable option. <laughs> but um, but the next summer we did it again, and then we, we picked up a couple of year-round accounts. We picked up a restaurant down in La Jolla, and we picked up actually a hospital that had a huge parking problem, and it became a year-round business. And, and literally step by step by step, it was one of those kind of how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time kind of deals where, you know, we woke up years later, and like you said, within about I think it was six or seven years. We had over 400 employees. We were doing special events. We were doing parking lot management. We were doing uh, hotels, hospitals, restaurants, um, and, and it had turned into a legitimate business. Um, really, just just step by step by step. And there there were a couple, I think, key key points for us as far as why it turned into a success. Uh, one that I remember particularly because it's so connected to the work that I do now. But there was a time that we got really connected to. Even though, you know, it's a silly, like you said, a valet parking business, you know, the level of expectation of our customer was called, please just get my car back in one piece, right? <laughs> yeah, do not scratch my, do exactly. not scratch my BMW. The same car, no damage, that would be great. And, um, but what we really realized that our cust- our clients, rather, the restaurant, the hotel, the, the host of the special event was trusting us with the first and last impression of their customer. So, you know, if, you, if you've been around restaurants, you know, people invest their entire life savings to start a restaurant. And to think of turning over your first and last impression of your customer to someone else was a huge, a huge gesture of trust. And we took that very, very seriously. And as I look back, I think the way we did business, the kind of culture we built, the way we approached who we hired and, and how we ran the business was really based not on just parking cars, but on, on treasuring that first and last impression of our of our client's customer. 
And we actually created a training program to get that across to our employees. So they hopefully, as much as a bunch of 19 and 20 year old kids could, remembered that as well. So you started this business around the time, and I, I don't know the exact year, but you started around the time that Ferris Bueller's Day Off came out. So how much did you relate with the valet parkers in that, that movie? Is, that is so funny that you asked that because um, I actually became the person who ran the training. Like I was like, you know, as much as we had like an HR person, I was that person. And, and the real reason for that is it was one of those you know, step forward if you'd like to do this and everybody else step back kind of deals where nobody else wanted to do it. So I did it. And uh, this will reveal my age, but we actually created a VHS training tape for our new valet Parker. At least it wasn't Betamax. There you go. But, but that scene from Ferris Bueller where the Ferrari pulls into the parking garage and the guy says, oh, don't worry, everything will be fine. You can trust me. And then goes flying airborne out the back door of the garage was actually in the training video that we created to demonstrate to people that level of expectation that people have that did, truly- did you, pay roy- did you pay royalties to have that in your training video? Uh, no, no. Again, we were just a, just a couple of college kids, and uh, if they can find that training video now to come after me, I don't know. Yeah, they probably they probably wouldn't now. I'm pretty sure that I didn't know what a royalty was at that time. And and the truth is, and I think this is part of the entrepreneurial journey is when you first start a business, you do what you have to do, and you know you're not worried about all those things. But the truth is, when you get to be a company where you have 400 employees and you have you know, the kind of payroll that we had, the kind of insurance that we had, the kind of liability that we had, it becomes an entirely different ballgame. And, and we literally did wake up, you know, one day years down the road and, and realize that we, we needed to run it much more like a, like a real business than a summer job. So what did you major in at UCSD? I majored in economics. Okay. I actually, I actually started as a math major and, uh, I think it was two quarters in to the advanced level math, I realized I was not going to be a math major. My, my brain was full and I couldn't handle any more math. So I shifted to econ just because it was something of real interest to me. Math is hard. You know, I have a, my oldest daughter who's now 26, uh, just finished her PhD in math. And I think I'm a living example that that either is carried by the female gene or it skips, skips generation. generations. So, she clearly didn't get it from me. So two years ago, maybe three years ago, my son-in-law to be, in fact, uh, their their wedding was supposed to be May sixteenth this year, and it got pushed Ooh. to the fall because of uh, everything of all the cancellations of everything. So he's my my son-in-law to be. We we were eight weeks away, and it, it pushed out a little bit. But he's a good kid. He's still going to be my son-in-law. He actually won the Putnam competition. Oh wow! So he uh, he was named a Putnam Fellow, which uh, most people listening have no idea what we're talking about, but you knew right away what it was. Yes, I, I know from, uh, but you know what, as you talk about that stuff, if you look carefully, if you're watching the video, you can see the hair on the top of my head move because it's like whizzing, right? We actually, uh, I have two other kids and my wife and uh, my other daughter and my son went to my oldest daughter's uh, defense of her PhD to support her. And we were there. We had signs. I think we were the most embarrassing family ever to go to a PhD defense, but uh, we had no idea what she was talking about. But, yeah. but I was so proud of her, you know, to watch her. What does she? Evening. What does she do now? She works for Microsoft now in nice. the cloud computing yep. division. Yep. My um, son-in-law. Yeah. My 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 son-in-law has a, a master's degree in applied mathematics, and he works for a hedge fund. 
There you go. Yeah. And it, for me, it's like, please don't ask me for any more details because she's doing the kind of math that doesn't have numbers. And for right. me, it's just. Yeah, he he was he was working on something and I was in his office in their apartment. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. There's no numbers on the board. There was no there was all kinds of symbols and no numbers on the board. Uh, but just to, to circle that back around for people who don't know what the Putnam competition is, the best way I can describe it is if there was an NCAA championship of math, it would be the NCAA championship of mathematics. And, and Thomas won it. Yeah, that's incredible. So, yeah. so, so you were an economics major. So you at least had some sort of a business, a business slant. You kind of understood what was going on. But did you always know that entrepreneurship was what it was? I mean, when you when you were applying to college, did you think someday I'm going to have my own business in math? Like a, I'm going to have an addition business. <laughs> uh, for the purpose of this show, I should absolutely say yes. But the truth is, absolutely no. I, I really did not. In fact, after running this company for several years. Um, I, you said you went to San Diego State. I often tell people I did my graduate work at San Diego State, which is true. I thought it would be helpful to go back and get an MBA to help in, in making this business kind of more legit. So I applied and got into the MBA program at San Diego State, and I was there for three weeks. And within three weeks, I could tell that this was not for entrepreneurs. At the time, they may have more entrepreneurial. Yeah, it's, now, it's changed now. I've talked to the people in the business school, and now they are. But but all of these business schools, there was no entrepreneurial training twenty no, five it years was, ago. It was very clearly designed for people who wanted to go into the corporate world and start, you know, two rungs higher on the ladder. And and I was learning things either that felt completely irrelevant to running a business like the business I was running, or things that I already knew. You know, things that I had already been doing just because we had to do them. So, uh, so I, that is where I did my graduate work, but it lasted all of three weeks. I was, was going to say, not even a whole semester. Well done. Yeah, it, it's just it was very clear that wasn't where I needed to be. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't something that I always intended to do. And in a lot of ways, actually, it was my partner who I would say who was more truly entrepreneurial in terms of doing the sales and marketing and the and the business planning side. I was more of an operations and and kind of running the business side. So we. And I think this was another really valuable lesson that I learned is that we complemented each other really, really well. Uh, if we had had two sales and marketing guys, um, but no operations guy, uh, I don't think we would have achieved this kind of success that we had achieved. And certainly if we had had two real good operations people, but not the sales and marketing kind of approach, that wouldn't have worked either. So, so we complemented each other really, really well. So what advice do you have for somebody who is listening to the show because they, they want to go start their own thing? They want to be entrepreneurial. What would you tell someone? I think that the, probably the single best piece of advice is to ask a lot of questions. Um, I think in our society, especially as men, sometimes we feel like we need to have all the answers. But the truth is we now live in a world where there's so much information, so accessible, a lot of it for free. We can get all the advice. We can get all the mentoring that we need. I think back to you know, the, the mid-80s when we were starting this business and, and we were figuring it out on our own. And, and we didn't have the same kind of accessibility to information and advice about how to run a business, how to communicate effectively with people, how to be a really good leader, how to manage people, um, you know, how to handle everything you know, from the accounting uh, to, to whatever side of the business. You know, we kind of had to figure all those things out on our own. And nowadays, if people are willing to ask questions and reach out for mentoring, I see so many people that say, oh, that, that person would never be willing to sit down and have lunch with me uh, and just help me. But the truth is most people who are successful are willing to do that. And they like being asked. 
Um, I, uh, I spent four years uh, working with Jack Canfield as the director of training for his organization. Jack's the guy who wrote the Chicken Soup for the Soul books, um, but uh, that's what he's best known for. But I worked with, he also wrote a book called The Success Principles, which, which is an I, amazing I, I, book. I've read it. He's awesome. It's, yeah, it's, an, it's like the Bible of personal development. And, um, and I work with Jack on that side of his business, not the chicken soup for the soul side. But, um, you know, people, people would come up to him and, you know, say, you know, would you, would you help me? And he, he's super busy. He would always want to help people. He, he would appreciate the fact that people would approach him and ask for help. And, and please don't, because you're listening to this podcast, please don't pick up the phone and call Jack and tell him that I said it was okay. Robert said, yeah, so I was going to, I was going to, I was going to ask you and say, so will he be on cool things entrepreneurs do make it happen? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Robert, call him for me. Yes. No, but, um, but I think asking questions and being willing to ask for questions. And, and, and one of the things I learned from Jack is a concept called no such thing as rejection. And when I first heard of it, you know, my mind started going through all the times in my life that I've been rejected, that people said no to me. And, and what he pointed out to me was, and this is really great for salespeople, is what he meant by no such thing as rejection is, you know, if I said to you, hey, you know, do you have time to go have lunch with me after we do this podcast today? And you say no. The question is, did I have anyone to have lunch with before I asked you? And the answer is no. And do I have anyone to have lunch with now? And the answer is no. And the fact is the situation has not gotten any worse. You know, I asked you to have lunch, you said no, for whatever reason, maybe you already have someone to have lunch with. Maybe you, maybe you heard I was a vegan and you don't wanna have lunch with me, I don't know. Oh, I like but, vegan food, it would have been fine. Yeah. <laughs> but the truth is we put all this meaning, you know, we heap all this meaning on rejection. Oh, I could never ask this person for advice on how to run or how to start this business you know, they're too busy or they don't have time for someone like me. And the truth is if I pick up the phone and I call Jack Canfield or I call Elon Musk or I call whoever and say, hey, would you be willing to have lunch with me? If they say no, you, you didn't have them to have lunch with before, you don't have it now. It hasn't gotten any worse, you know, pick up the phone <clears throat> well, again. You talk about like the importance of these types of people and getting mentorship. So I have two gentlemen who I've been their mentor for a long time, probably about seven years now. and. Uh, their friends, I think they've done very well in their career and they always tell their friends, well, I have this mentor who I can just turn to. He helps talk me off the ledge or, you know, gives me a different point of view. And their friends are like, how do you get a mentor? And some of their friends are other people who are like, I'll talk about them when I give a speech and some 25, 30 year old will come up and I'll be like, yeah, I'm not, they're too much work. I'm not taking on any more mentees. Uh, I can't get rid of them. But uh, they ask, you know, how do you, how did they become your mentees? I said, well, I've had people ask me before, you know, would you be my mentor? And I'm like, I don't even know what that means, but you're welcome to call me anytime. And I go, the difference with Nick and Jake and anyone else who ever asked is they keep calling. Seven years later, my wife invites them for Father's Day because uh, uh, they call me their fake dad. And of course, my line is, is that cool older brother would have been a much better nickname, but whatever, we'll go with fake dad. Uh, but it's because they called and, and they, right. I've done a seminar with them on two millennials on how to find a mentor and one of the things we always say is the mentee has to drive that boat i couldn't early on have called them and say hey jake can i mentor you today that would be awkward so the mentee has to drive the boat early on eventually it becomes a real friendship and and it you know it is what it is but you know for the, for the time being the person has to ask and they just sure. they just both did and then all of a sudden yeah, and we you, were friends you're demonstra yeah you're demonstrating that you know you asked me a question about what would my advice be and i gave a pretty simple answer but there are layers and layers of complexity underneath that answer first of all people need to be willing to ask and and a lot of people aren't and they need to know how to craft a clear request. Because like you said, if someone just calls and says, hey, will you mentor me? 
but they're not clear about what that means. That's a whole different re- level of request than someone who says, hey, you know, I'm starting this business and I see that you're really successful in this arena and I'm looking for someone who would be willing to get on the phone with me for half an hour once a month to, to just answer my questions and give me your advice as someone who's already been down the path, would you be willing to do that? Now, all of a sudden, you know exactly what you're agreeing to. And there is that sense of, of making real difference in this person's life. Um, and, and the piece you brought up about persistence, you know, you ask once, and, you know, you and I were just at this conference together where we met and we all met all these amazing people. And I, you know, you come home with a stack of cards that you need to follow up with. I bet it's half the people who don't even follow up. Those cards sit on their desk or sit on their mantle or wherever they go. They're still in their backpack and they never get followed up on. So, so you know, there's all these requests that could be made. I mean, I have a stack of cards here of people who said, yes, please, I want to come on your podcast. Yes, I'd like to have you on my podcast. But if I don't follow up, most of that's not going to happen. Yep. So yeah, it's as simple as asking, but there's layers of complexity within that and things that we need to be willing to do. And we, you know, making effective requests is a whole different level than just, you know, picking up the phone randomly without thinking about it and just asking for something that you're not even clear about what you need. So Robert, let's fast forward to today. So now you have a company called Excellent. Well, let's back up. Did you sell the company? What happened to the company? Uh, My partner actually bought me out. Okay. Um, I was just curious. I I told you, yeah, I told you, I actually ended up kind of accidentally being the person who was doing the training. And truthfully, I, I just fell in love with it. Uh, the first, uh, the first management training we ever did, we we bought eight. We had eight managers at the time, and we bought eight copies of Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People on audio cassette. Again, to date myself, and 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 we for eight weeks we had those managers come in on a Tuesday night, and we we had them listen to one of those tapes before they came in, and we talked about it. That was our management training program, and we brought those principles into our business, and and I facilitated it not because I was a master facilitator, but because nobody else wanted to do it. And I loved it. Mm -hmm. I absolutely loved it. And I started going to more classes myself and reading more myself and realizing that I had a lot more passion for that than I did for parking cars. And I wanted to do more of it. Uh, And that was when my partner actually bought me out. um, And I moved on to doing what I'm doing now. Does he still have the business today? Uh, he actually then sold the business okay. uh, as a strictly financial move. My my following of my passion didn't work out as well as it as it could have. But um, yeah, he ended up selling the business, and then the business sold again. And um, I just heard this week actually that the person who runs the company that now that that absorbed our company just got named to the board of advisors for the conscious capitalism movement. Awesome. And I, I got to tell you, I felt so good about that because I know from staying in touch with my former partner that the culture we built at our little, you know, beachside parking company in San Diego, California, the culture that we built was translated into this much larger parking company and really is the foundation of their training program and their, their culture that is now at that level of, of being on the board of conscious capitalism. So so let's fast forward to today. So you now have a company called Excellent Decisions, which I love the name of that because I try to make all my decisions excellent. I fail quite often, but I try. <laughs> uh, so so tell us about that company, you know, somewhat briefly and, and what you do now. Okay, so uh, the Excellent Decisions concept actually came out of some work that I was doing with young people and seeing how much stress and pressure that they're faced with. And I started referring to helping them make decisions based on their vision and their values rather than all that stress and pressure. 
And what I noticed when I was having that conversation was that people responded just as you described, like, ooh, I need to know more about that. You know, I, I want to make more excellent decisions. What does that mean? And I, I've literally defined it as making decisions now, not, not only based on vision and values, but also vision and values and value, which for entrepreneurs and in the marketplace, I learned myself and it made a fundamental difference in my own business now that real clarity about my value, understanding the value and being able to articulate the value that I bring to my clients and my customers is a game changer. If people can't do that really effectively, it's very difficult to succeed. Um, but the, the way I define excellent decisions is decisions based on vision and values and value rather than stress and pressure. And again, in today's world, people understand stress and pressure really quickly. It's, every, it's the, the media, the social media, our friends, our family, all the environments that we're surrounded by that are telling us we, we should do it this way, we have to do it this way. And the truth is we have decisions to make. We can decide how we're gonna run our business, how we're gonna interact with people, what kind of leader we're gonna be. And I developed a process to take people through to first of all, become more aware of how change works. People come to me because they have some change they wanna make in their life. There's something, they wanna make more money, they wanna improve a relationship, they wanna lose weight, whatever it is, but they have some change. But a lot of times people don't understand how change works. So that's the first step, along with personal responsibility, because if people aren't willing to take personal responsibility, any of the rest of the work that I do might be interesting and entertaining, but chances are it's not really gonna make a difference. And I think personal responsibility is one of the things that really defines an effective entrepreneur because if people think they're gonna succeed as an entrepreneur in a mindset of blaming and shaming and making excuses, it's just not gonna happen. So who's your ideal client? Who, do you, who specifically do you work with in this type of work? Uh, I work with organizations and individuals um, my ideal client is someone who is either experiencing change, like, like, know, like everyone. Well, well, yeah, but you know, some people are pretty comfortable in their current situation. And my ideal client is someone who, who's really driven. I mean, the truth is someone's not going to invest the time and the money to work with someone like me unless they have what I would call a compelling change, either a change that's being thrust upon them some marketplace change. One of the companies I'm working with right now has a 600% growth rate. Um, they're, they're delivering 600% more product than they were delivering last year. And so they have tremendous change that's been thrust upon them. Um, they also have a desire, like a change that they wanna create themselves, not necessarily a change, but they wanna maintain their culture. So they have a, a strong change that's been thrust upon them and they have a strong desire. So. So they're willing to invest the time and, and the money to work with someone like me. So I've got a couple more questions for you before you can before I can let you go. But first, I have to thank the sponsor of this episode. So this episode, like all of them, is brought to you by Podfly Productions. Podfly takes the time and the headache out of creating your own podcast. They set you up with the right equipment, training, and guidance to ensure that you're gonna sound amazing. Podfly does all the heavy lifting and that pesky technical work so that you can focus on creating great content, growing your audience, and interviewing really cool people like Robert McPhee. Hey, if you want to start a podcast, and I know that some of you do, jump over to podfly.net slash cool things and check out the offer that they have for the listeners of this show. So Robert, I call this show Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. What's the coolest thing you're doing in business right now? 
I would say, wow, the coolest thing I'm doing in business is I aligned my work with a customer service company that's actually based in Singapore. And, and I'm doing, we call it customer service training, but it's actually culture work where we're, we're going in and working with organizations that are not what you would normally think of as customer service companies. They're not necessarily restaurants or hotels or airlines or something like that, but all sorts of different companies and teaching them how to create a service culture. And it's been an absolute blast for me. I tell people, I really have no interest in doing typical rah-rah motivational customer service training, you know, put the sign up on the wall that says fabulous service and call everything fabulous. And then six months later, we look back and say, did anything change? No, but this is a real culture program. And for me, what makes it really interesting is first of all, the, the, the work itself and, and how in alignment it is. It's also become a really great example for me. I first met these people four years ago. And it took until about nine months ago for the relationship to really bloom. And for me to, re- I'm, I'm like the one person in North America who's, who's doing training for them. But because of a number of factors, it took a long time for it to get busy. And it became a really good example for me of the importance of being patient in our relationship with our potential clients. I kept trusting that this was a good fit for me, even when, you know, the business wasn't coming yet and the opportunity wasn't really manifesting. I kept having to be patient. And, and now it's become probably my second biggest client that I've ever had. And on a consistent basis, I love it too, because I love doing the work I do, but they do the sales and marketing. So they pick up the phone, they call me and they say, hey, are you available this week in April? And we want you to go. They send me to fabulous places like Oklahoma and Louisiana, you know, as a speaker, right? We always get to go to the most glamorous places in the world. Um, but it's, it's just been really interesting for me to see that whole thing develop. And, and to be part of something that's just, that's bigger than uh, some of the things, as a solopreneur now, uh, just my, myself and a part-time assistant in my business, um, it's, it's great to be part of something that's much bigger and see that it's making an international impact. So Robert, this has been fun, but I always have two last questions I try to ask most of my guests. And, and the first one of those is, when you look out at the entrepreneur sphere, this world of entrepreneurship, who do you admire? Because I think, good entrepreneurs, I think, I think they're observers. So I love to know if somebody says, wow, she or he, they're doing cool things. Oh, wow. You know, I am so blessed to have a network. You know, I've been doing this kind of work for more than 20 years and I, I've been in, in an incredible network of people. Uh, the, the first person who comes to mind though, and, and maybe because I interviewed him on my podcast yesterday, um, but uh, as a gentleman by the name of David Meltzer, and don't be confused by Dave Meltzer, who is apparently a professional wrestler. But this is David I, Meltzer. I didn't know that. There was no confusion. <laughs> I didn't either until I, I actually was online searching for uh, David Meltzer's bio. And I came across all this professional wrestling stuff. I'm like, whatever. Um, but the reason David comes to mind is, is, first of all, he's a really heart-centered entrepreneur. He's, he's someone who really understands the concept of really being on purpose and, um, and, and living his life and running his business in alignment with, again, his own vision and values and value. Um, he's also s- someone who's been through some really difficult times. Like he has, he has hit bottom. He has had incredible successes. He had success as an attorney. He actually used to run Lee Steinberg's sports agency. So he was at the pinnacle of all that. Um, and then he lost everything. Like in the, I think it was in the 2008 real estate crash. Uh, he, he just kept hanging on and hanging on and thinking, and he literally lost everything and he has rebuilt everything. 
So he shares the same kind of commitment and I think similar values to mine, which is one of the reasons. Um, but his level of success and accomplishment uh, in alignment with that sense of purpose is really the reason why he comes to mind for me. Nice example. And the final question I ask people is, I think that if you're fortunate, and clearly you're fortunate, uh, you gotta do more than just make money. You gotta find your way to give back to the greater good. So, so how do you serve humanity? Uh, one of the ways I'm serving humanity right now is working with an organization called the Pachamama Alliance, which I actually came into contact with, wow, 15, maybe more years ago now, a, a remarkable woman by the name of Lynn Twist and her husband, Bill. And, uh, and they have an incredible organization that is working on social justice, environmental sustainability, and what they call spiritual fulfillment, um, and, and working with indigenous people in Ecuador to not only support them and help them in, in maintaining the rainforest and things like that down there, but also one of the reasons I love what they're doing is there's an element of us in the Western world learning from those indigenous people. And, and learning, like, what do they know? What, what, is, what is the wisdom and the knowledge that they have that can benefit, you know, those of us in the Western world that think we're so darn smart sometimes and have all the answers and the technology and everything. Um, but there's some real wisdom that we can gain from those indigenous people. So some really good work being done with the environment and with um, social justice issues. Uh, but that two-way learning piece, I think, is the one that really got my attention and why I choose to spend time and, and invest resources with them. Awesome. So, Robert, if somebody's listening to this and they go, I got to know more about this guy, how do they find you? Uh, pretty simple these days. I got very lucky when I rebranded myself to Excellent Decisions that excellentdecisions.com was available. I was surprised at the time and have been thrilled ever since. But um, I'm not one of those people who has 12 gatekeepers, so... Uh, you can reach me, Robert, at excellentdecisions.com or just by going to excellentdecisions.com. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for being here on the show and sharing your story and your wisdom. And thank you to everybody who tuned in and listened. I say it every time. If it wasn't for the audience, why would we do this? There'd be no show. So I hope you're enjoying all of these interviews here on Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. If you like the show, I got two favors. Go review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast love. Or, and go out and tell somebody about it. Because when I meet people who listen to the show, number one reason they say they found the show, <clears throat> someone they know referred them. Uh, their mother, their brother, their boss, their friend said, hey, you should listen to this show. Uh, so go tell somebody before the day's over. Go tell everyone you know to join the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do Club. Uh, we're gonna be back in a couple of days with somebody just as cool as Robert. But in the meantime, go out there Flex those entrepreneurial muscles. We need you in this economy and in this time. Make sure that your ladder is against the right wall, that you're doing the right things for your career. And while you're at it, have a great day. Thank you for being part of the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast. Without your participation and listening to these conversations, there is no show. Connect with Tom at TomSinger.com and follow him on Twitter at, at TomSinger. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.